So know what the plays mean in the game you play. Between the texture and the size of the bet, a lot of times it it starts to tell a story. You have a bigger range advantage you should be betting more often. And as you have a polarization advantage, you should be betting bigger. So I think I'm likely playing suboptimally pre-flop because of my lack of confidence post-flop. Think about all those things and remember that as the pre-flop raiser, people are going to make big range mistakes. Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. This is Steve Fredland welcoming you. We are officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, and we are partnered with Next Level Poker Tour, which is the official tour for the Rec Poker Podcast. We also partner with the Poker is Fun Tour and PokerCoaching.com. A couple of quick announcements, all in for Africa 7, coming up Saturday, October 28th, coming up soon, 10.30 a.m. at Running Aces, and reminder that the final table will be broadcast live by Next Level Poker. Also, we got a number of uh, Twitter contests going out out there. So if you follow at All In For Africa, uh, you can maybe win some, win your way in, or win some cash. Also, All In For Africa's Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most tournament is on Thursday, November second at six p.m. Also at Running Aces. So go to runaces.com for details on all of that. So the last couple of weeks, we looked at pre-flop considerations when it's folded to us, and when there's a raise in front of us. This week, we're going to consider what we should do post-flop when we were the pre-flop raiser and we had a caller. We're going to look at different situations when this happens. For example, when we're out of position, or when we are in position and it's checked to us, or when we are in position and our opponent let out into us. Now, obviously, this is a huge, multifaceted question, and we can't answer all the nuances, but I've asked our experts to share what are the most critical factors in deciding what we should do, as well as asking them to, to talk a little bit about bet sizes when we do bet or raise. The idea here is to start building an understanding of the most important factors or the principles when we're making these decisions. I want to thank Mike Engelhopt and Dan Young who sent in questions leading to this discussion. So after a quick shout out to our official sponsor, you're going to hear from Minnesota Hall of Famer Mike Schneider, World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace, and author, coach, and beast of a player Jonathan Little. I'm going to then share my thoughts and some things that I pulled from other online resources to help round out the discussion. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. He's won a million dollars! Hi, this is Mike Schneider of Poker is Fun Tour, urlpiftpoker.com, which is also where you can find us on Twitter at piftpoker. All right, a lot of components to this question here. I'm going to begin with uh, when we raise and get cold called by somebody acting by after us, what factors do I use uh, when deciding whether I'm going to continuation bet or check to them? Probably mean there's three, three major points. I mean, I'd say the first big point is what is the flop texture going to probably be bet a lot more of king eight two flops than comparatively if it's ten nine eight with two spades and one heart just reason being that 
the the ladder flop is way more likely to have hit hit the type of hands that somebody would cold call with behind. You know, all those jack tens, eight seven suiteds or, you know, even just like King Jack. Like they they got straight jaw open and straight jaw there. Just a lot of ways that people hit hit the ten nine eight compared to the King eight two. Or even like King eight two and somebody has pocket fives if you bet the flop and bet the turn it's going to be really hard for them to call twice let alone they might even just fold on the flop to you so then i i mean that would be one thing just the board texture just the more coordinated the the more likely i'm going to check or even say if it's like ace nine four that I, I don't always bet it with an ace just because for there I am trying to do a little bit of balancing because there's nothing worse than betting that flop and getting raised and then having to call and facing a big turn bet. You're often uh, often stuck in no man's land, but I, I do bet king-queen a lot on that ace-high flop, but I do check it a fair amount of time or other type of hands like that just to balance to make it so I can also check an ace and not have it be a dead giveaway that I have an ace with a weak kicker or even ace king or anything like that but so then another another factor would be the stack size behind the player that'd be the that'd be an important point number two and uh, a lot more of that would be more along the lines of if they have a smaller medium stack my question then becomes if i bet this flop am i happy to caller all in raise and how what does that do to my own stack where like say it's say it's a king 10 four flop and we've got ace 10 my main choice if it's a smaller medium stack size do i think they're going to commit their tournament life with a hand worse than that if yes i'm just gonna go ahead and maybe bet third to half of the pot in anticipation of snap calling if they go all in for whatever amount more or i mean if it's a more aggressive player i might check and try to hope that i can get them getting catch them getting greedy and get them to blast off with pocket sevens on that king 10 four flop just hope they're hoping to take it down right there and then me i get to accumulate chips in a spot where they maybe were going to uh, otherwise save their chips yeah, so then otherwise on the more coordinated boards, especially if if a guy has a large chip stack or large relative to what I have, way more likely to uh, simply check a lot of those 10, 9, 8 flops, even if I do have a hand like, uh, like uh, we'll just say Jack 10 suited on the 10, 9, 8 flop, just... Just because my goal is to not end up playing a huge pot there where I might have the best hand, but if I don't have the best hand, I have a big draw. I'm more, more about pot control there and letting them either blast off or if I check and they check behind, there aren't there aren't so many free cards that can really kill my hand. Obviously, there are there are some free cards that will, will, we will end up regretting uh, having checked the flop, but it's a, a spot where just it's not... not the end of the world if the flop does get checked behind then uh the third third factor would just be what have uh what have i shown lately what have i done what have they done it's really really hard to define abstractly but have i bet the last three times that it's been this kind of scenario and if so that might make me a little more likely to check no matter what i have or have i checked it two straight times because i whiffed and i check folded 
now this time I didn't flop anything, but maybe I'm going to bet it just in hopes that they notice that I check folded twice. So they're going to interpret my bet as meaning I have it or just little, little things like that. And then vice versa, the same with the opponents. If they're, there's some guys that I know when they cold call there, they're almost never folding any flop. So it makes it really, really tricky to just bet 100% of the time or check a strong hand when you know if they're likely to call you because they're the type of player that's hoping to steal the pot from you on the Turner River. So just a lot of little things like that to consider. So now uh, next part, when we are in position and it's checked to me, what is your what is my decision process? Uh, I mean, it's really pretty similar. Just uh, going to bet a little bit more often than compared to when I'm out of position, but... Yeah, definitely looking at like way ahead, way behind spots, like a hand like king queen on a king eight two flop. If they check, I might check behind because I'm gonna get a little bit of value on the Turner River out of them. Where whereas that flop misses a lot of their range, they might just check fold. And if they have a hand like ten nine, I'd love for them to turn a ten and give me a little bit of their money. So like it's it's a lot about board texture too when in position, and then otherwise, you know, the standard how large is their stack versus mine discussion too and then all right so quickly moving on to uh when we're in position and our opponent bets out into me what is my decision process that's a lot comes down to what is the board texture and then trying to then what is the bet size too like uh between the texture and the size of the bet a lot of times it it starts to tell a story about what kind of hand they might have and I have found on a, a lot of these, especially if especially if they bet out into you on the turn randomly after you bet the flop, I have found a lot of times that turn bet is weakness, and I tend to try to raise that bet a lot. I mean, not, not 100% of the time, but it just, to me, it's a story that screams uh, weakness. And then, because uh, I'm running out of time here, as I uh, quickly touch on typical bet sizes in each of the scenarios where you bet and raise. Again, uh, a, l- a lot of times it'll depend on a board texture, like take an ace high flop. After I, let's just say I make it 2,000 pre flop and I get called, and now plus the blinds and annies, we'll just say there's 4,500 in the pot, and the pot comes ace eight three. I might even bet just like 1500 there, which is less than uh, less than what I, my preflop raise was. Reason being, a side board, you're way ahead or way behind. And whether you bet 1500 or 3500 in general, you're going to get the same information. And the reason why we're choosing a small bet over a large bet for that information is because we're more likely to not have a hand than have a hand there. So we're happy to... Uh, to risk less just due to the fact that we in general are looking for folds there over getting calls. So if we were, if it was a type of board where we're always looking for calls, we would generally err towards betting the larger amount, but we're going to more likely not have it than have it. We'd rather risk, risk less there. So the times we do get action, we're able to get away from the pot for less. So yeah, sorry to kind of speed through the last few components of that question, but I realize I, Kind of took a lot of time on the first half, but until next time, this is Mike Schneider of Poker's Fun Tour, and I'd just like to uh, remind all of you that we recently started selling T-shirts for the Poker's Fun Tour. We have several different varieties of the, our logo, as well as we just started offering a shirt that uh, says, "If you if you don't want to get rivered, fold on the turn." And that has a little 
little Piffed logo on it too. It's kind of a cool looking shirt. Highly recommend you check them out, and we will uh, have more more cool shirts of that kind of different little funny sayings or whatnot coming pretty soon. You can find a link to that on our website, piftpoker.com, or through our uh, partnership with Flop the World. They are the ones who are selling our t-shirts for us. So until next time, thanks. This is Mike Schneider. Fox here from Next Level Poker. Hello again, Rec Poker Podcast. Um, playing on the flop when you're the, ple- the pre-flop aggressor is a completely different animal. The most important thing is to remember how people now see your range. Your opponents are going to see your range very differently. Most even recreational players these days are at least thinking about ranges a little bit. They're at least considering that you raised pre-flop or that you called pre-flop. Generally, the assumption is if you raised pre-flop, you've got big cards or a pair. And if you called a raise pre-flop, you don't have uh, a big ace or a big pair. So remember how people are going to see you. And then part of the question is in and out of position, checked or donked into. And that's, you know, that gives us four different things to look at. If you're in a position and they check to you, unless you're worried about being check-raised and being blown off your hand, or you're sure that you're going to be called, you're almost always continuation betting. Now, there was a time 10 years ago when good players would always continuation bet. Now, good players know that they shouldn't always continuation bet. But you should most of the time. And in cash games, I'm probably continuation betting 75%, 80% of the time. In tournaments, it's probably even a little higher than that. But not always. You're thinking about what is your opponent likely to have? Who is this person? How likely are they to check-raise me? How unhappy am I if they check-raise me? Um, If you've got a pair of sixes on a king-9-3 board that's rainbow, you don't mind at all being check-raised, really. Um, You'd like to take your 20-to-1 shot to try and make your set of sixes. But... If you don't think you're going to always be check-raised, and you think there's some possibility your opponent's going to fold, you bet your six is there. Not because they're necessarily the best hand, although they very well could be. But because if you get check-raised on that board, you're always badly behind. And so you're really just throwing away a 20-to-1 shot. It's not a big loss. If instead you have ace-queen on a jack-10-3 board... You hate a big check raise that makes you fold. You're throwing away the two over cards and the inside straight draw and potential backdoor straight draw that could come on the other end. There's a lot of equity that you're losing here. So if you think you're likely to be check raised in a way that you can't call it, you want to you might want to check behind with that hand on that board. So board textures matter, opponents matter, ranges matter. All these your hands All these things are important things to think about. You don't want to be throwing away good hands in that spot if you don't have to. You should be watching your opponents carefully, and if you're in a live game, especially since we're geared to recreational players here, a soft live game, and you're watching your opponents, you should be picking up something on them when they see the flop. Remember, you're never watching the flop. You're watching them watch the flop. 
That's why I wear blue sharks. It's not because I don't want people to see me. Because your opponents mostly aren't paying enough attention to matter. In some of the big events, I will find uh, three or four people at the table sometimes paying attention to me when I'm when I'm uh, it's my turn to act or when the flop falls. In these smaller events, you're just never going to see that. In small cash games and home games, you just don't see that. It's very rare. When you do see it, you pick out that person pretty quickly. And so, with the blue sharks on, the key is not that they're not that that I'm worried they're looking at me. The key is I'm worried they're going to notice me looking at them. And with the blue sharks, your opponents won't see you looking at them. They won't notice that you're watching them watch the flop. You can see the flop in a minute. You've got time. It's not going anywhere. But you can only see their initial reaction to the flop right when the flop falls. So you shouldn't see the flop revealed. You should see them see the flop revealed. You should be watching them in in every way that you can when you're in a hand, when you're not in hand, whatever, so that when you're in this situation... You raise pre-flop, the big blind defends, and they check to you. You have some idea whether they have a hand or not. With some players, you won't always get that. But with a lot of players, you will, and it'll make these situations much easier. When you're out of position and you're the pre-flop aggressor, you have a different set of things to think about. You are typically leading into your opponent's And are you going to get raised, and can you call if you get raised? Same kinds of thoughts with being check-raised. Except that because you're expected to bet here, you have to bet to continue telling your story, and then they're acting after you, you've got to think a little farther ahead in the hand. Am I able to bet here, and if they raise me, can I three-bet and blow them off the hand? Given the board texture and what I know about this opponent, what his likely range is, or... Am I betting here where I can fold if he raises because he's only going to raise if he's got it? All those kinds of things that are much too complicated to cover in the five or ten minutes that I have to spend on a podcast. If somebody leads into you, think about what that means and what it typically means in your game. I have often told students, I can't tell you what it usually means if you and I don't play the same games, but I can tell you it's very important to know what each thing usually means. It's been a couple years since I was a regular in the cash games at Running Aces. But when I was, it typically, when a big draw came in and somebody had been check calling and then they lead into you, they always have it. There were a few players who didn't always have it, but most of the players there, that play, the standard play, and the meaning of that play was that they had it, that they made their draw. When I play in California, that usually means they missed their draw. Unless all the draws came in or there's something else, if there's a flush and a straight draw on board and the flush draw comes and they lead into you, it's often the busted straight draw because they like to check-raise draws, especially uh, those games in Northern California that are very wild. They check-raise draws once they hit them. They check-raise the nuts when they make it on the river. And that's something that people in Minnesota never do. It's very rare. And you'll know the players who do it. The tricky players who will do that, you'll pick them out pretty quickly. So know what the plays mean in the game you play. If you don't know what it means, a good assumption is if they lead into you on the flop, they flopped top pair, bottom two, 
um, a, a, a reasonable size draw, but most often it's top pair. So can this person fold top pair? Do you want them to fold top pair? Can you beat top pair? If you raise and they have top pair, are they just going to call and then you can take a draw for free on the turn if you miss it? If you, if you flop the draw, there's all these things to think about when you're in that situation. Typically, C-bet sizing was part of the question, and, and typically C-bets are around two-thirds of the pot. But you can go much smaller than that in some cases. You can go bigger than that in some cases, especially in tournaments. There are times when I C-bet a third of the pot or even a little less. People see that bet and they think, I don't have a shot here and he must have a big hand if he's betting that small and I better fold. Or if you want them to call and you flop something, sometimes you'll get them to call. But people won't raise those small bets very often, especially in tournaments. And so you can get away with a much smaller C-bet that is nearly as effective as a bigger 3-bet would be. On the other hand, in cash games, people don't fold to smaller C-bets very often, and you'll know the players who are going to. The bigger C-bet in cash games sometimes can blow people off a second pair or a small pair kind of hand. Um, if you're the pre-flop raiser, especially if you 3-bet somebody pre-flop or you made a big size uh, c um, pre-flop raise if you somebody called you and the flop is queen eight three and you think it's very likely that they either have two big cards or a small pair they probably didn't hit that flop very hard but they may call with a pair of sixes one time if you bet if they have position on you to see if you check to them and then they and then they you know float the flop and bet you off it on the turn whereas if you make a big bet on the flop they're very likely to fold all those hands that didn't at least hit a queen. So your bet sizing often also depends on your opponents and the situation. Think about all those things and remember that as the pre-flop raiser, people are going to make big range mistakes against you. They're going to put you on big cards and big pairs. They're mostly going to put you on big cards. So if you're the pre-flop raiser with 6-8 of diamonds from the cutoff, they're going to put you on big cards, and when you hit your 6-8 of diamonds, you can make money. And when the big cards come, you can often steal the flop. But remember that because people start with that kind of range and they put you on big cards, even people who don't think well about ranges are doing that kind of thing. They're putting you on big cards and, and big pairs. And so when big cards come out, you can often steal that. But remember to tell a realistic story. And so... If the flop comes a deuce, deuce four, and you make a big bet, you're representing aces, kings, queens. If the flop comes ace, four, three, you're representing ace, king, ace, queen. And if they put up a fight and you can't beat the hands that they're putting up a fight with and you don't think they're going to let go, you got to let it go. If the flop instead comes nine, nine, ten, and you make a small bet and they call and you check raise the turn, to a lot of players, that looks like you flopped a full house or three nines, and it's very scary. Some player, some players still won't believe that, but know your player and tell realistic stories. If you want them to fold, tell a, re a story that's believable. If you don't want them to fold, tell them a story they can't imagine is true. But you're always telling a story with your bets, and that's what you want to think about. What do I want to achieve, and what do I want them to think? Remember, we have... The All In For Africa event coming up on the 28th. My company, Blind Straddle, and my tour, Next Level Poker, will be broadcasting that event. It's going to be a ton of fun. I expect you all to be there. 10.30 a.m. at Running Aces, one of my favorite card rooms, and I'm coming back to Minnesota just to play that event and broadcast it.
Then we have our event at Diamond Joe's. Our first step-up event, which is a $55 buy-in, is November 5th. There's one every Sunday after that until our main event, uh, until our actual series starts. And there are seats, lots of seats available that aren't being fought for very hard, and you could easily get a seat into our Pocket Fives Invitational event. So if you go to nextlevel.poker, click on Invitational, you can see there are four ways to win seats, four different seats that can be won into our Invitational event. And that Invitational pays a... Um, first place is a seat in the main event and a, and a big prize package and then there's other cash spots paid as well um, so get in there and get into especially the the uh, draft of local and home game contests I have very few entries at this point so you got a real shot at winning a seat into that event which is Tuesday I think it's the 21st of November it's um, within a day or two of that and you can be our featured pro for the week and win a main event seat and it won't cost you a thing. Just get in those contests. The Facebook contest doesn't have all that many entries either. Um, and then our uh, our series starts November 21st with that Invitational. November 22nd is the, or maybe it's 22nd and then 23rd, is the um, tune-up event, which is the same structure but half-hour levels as our main event. Then we take a day off for Thanksgiving. And then three flights in the main event, 750 buy-in, and day two is on sunday and somebody's gonna win a big pile of money down at diamond joe's and remember that their uh, bad beat's gonna be really big while we're down there too so i will see you october 21st or 28th at running aces and then in november at diamond joe's people are like are you little because your name says you're little i say no i'm not little hello this is jonathan little for pokercoaching.com and today we have a question that will take a very long time to answer, way longer than the few minutes I am allotted to answer it. So I'm going to do my best. Um, so whenever you raise and one person calls and you are out of position first stack, this is going to be when you raise from, let's say, middle position and the big uh, the button calls someone in position against you. What are we thinking about when we determine when to continuation bets? All right. First thing you want to think about is who has the range advantage. This is often difficult to know unless you study this a lot, but in general, Big cards and uncoordinated boards are going to be better for the preflop raiser. And the reason for that is because the preflop caller would ideally re-raise with his best hands, right? So if he doesn't have his best hands, he has the more marginal stuff like suited connectors, medium pairs, random big cards, etc. Whereas the initial raiser probably has just a more solid range of strong hands because he can still have aces, kings, and queens in his range, right? Because he didn't have the opportunity to four bet or anything like that. And then just, you know, good cards, right? So as if the flop comes something like ace, seven, two, that's a great spot for the pre-flop raiser. If it comes eight, seven, six, all diamonds or two diamonds, that's usually gonna be way better for the caller. So if you have a range advantage, that should make you want to bet more often. Um, next, you want to ask who has the polarization advantage. If the flop comes ace, jack jack or ace nine nine the preflop raiser will have a range advantage but he doesn't have the polarization advantage because the preflop caller should have way more nines for example on ace nine nine in his range than the preflop raiser because the preflop caller is going to be calling with stuff like well jack nine suited and ten nine suited and nine eight suited and maybe ace nine and maybe king nine and maybe queen nine like a lot of just hands containing nines where some preflop raisers don't even have those in their range right 
So as you have a polarization advantage, you can bet bigger. And as you have a disadvantage, which in this spot the preflop raiser would, you should be betting smaller. Um, you also want to ask yourself how often you should be betting. And um, again, the, how often you should be betting is based on who has the range advantage. As you have a bigger range advantage, you should be betting more often. And as you have a polarization advantage, you should be betting bigger. Now, polarization also implies that there are some bluffs available. And whenever you raise from, let's say, early position in the button calls you and it comes ace, nine, nine, well, you could ask stuff like queen, jack and king, queen that you don't mind bluffing with, right? So it's perfectly fine to make a bet in that spot, a small bet with a lot of your hands. Okay. Now let's assume we are in position and it's checked to you. So here's when we raise and then a player in the small blind or the big blind calls. At this point, typically you are going to want to consider having a checking behind range with your marginal made hands and your garbage. Now that implies you're going to be betting with your premium made hands and your draws. And that's usually going to be a pretty strong strategy. And I actually outlined this extensively in my newest book, Mastering Small Stakes and No Limit Hold'em, where I go through a lot of examples of situations where I say I explain to you why you should be betting with which hands, and you go from there. And again, your sizing, as the board becomes more draw-heavy, you're typically going to want to be betting bigger if you are going to be betting with primarily nut hands and draws. If you're going to be betting with a wider range of stuff like middle pairs, well, then you're typically going to want to be betting smaller. So as you can see, it's not just a simple, It's not. A, there's no simple answer of, okay, bet two-thirds pot all the time, or check all the time, or bet two-thirds pot with your good hands and check everything else. That's not really how poker works if you're trying to play a strong strategy, strategy that's difficult to exploit. Um, now let's assume you're in position and your opponent leads into you. Well, I mean, that's... I just recently did a webinar for that on pokercoaching.com that took two hours. So um, that's that's a very big question. But in general, you want to figure out what your opponent's leading range looks like. How do you do that? You get some experience, right? I can't tell you what your opponents are leading with. In general, people lead with either nut hands, marginal made hands, draws, or garbage. You just have to figure out which one of those your particular opponent is leading with. Of course, some people are balanced and they lead with a range that's um, very difficult to play against. But um, as we've discussed in the, at PokerCoaching.com in the inner circle, they the, it's very hard to develop a range like that. And most of the time, you're just better off checking everything. So if your opponent is leading, they're typically either trying to exploit you or they just have a giant flaw in their game where they lead with one specific type of hand. And once you figure out what type of hand that is, you can just play accordingly. And typical bet sizes in these scenarios, usually your continuation bet should be somewhere between... 25% pot on very dry boards and something like the size of the pot on somewhat coordinated boards or th three-fourths pot. Typically, as you're betting a smaller portion of your range and your range is more polarized, you're going to want to bet bigger. And as you're betting more of your range and you're betting more linearly, which is your you know value hands for the most part or just a wide range in general because you have a range advantage, you want to bet smaller. Although... Again, these are very, very broad assessments, and um, poker's tough. Don't think we can answer this question in seven minutes. I apologize. <laughs> so that's going to be it for me today. This has been Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. You can go there to get a free one-week trial where we have a ton of quizzes that you can go through, and 
I'll explain exactly why I'm making my bets in various situations. And hopefully that'll give you a much better idea of how to play various situations on the flop because um, typically examples are a much better way to illustrate most poker situations than just giving a broad generalization. So check that out at pokercoaching.com and uh, let me know what you think. This has been Jonathan Little. All right. Thanks, everybody, for that. Now let's hear from our sponsor, and then I'll be back with my thoughts and some thoughts from other resources and experts. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So I recited Pi to 22,514 decimal places. It took me five hours and nine minutes. Well, I know today we're talking about post-flop strategy, but obviously it all works together. And I'm pretty convinced that I changed my pre-flop strategy based primarily on my comfort level post-flop. I struggle a bit with some of the decision-making post-flop, especially if I'm out of position or if I didn't connect well with the board, that sort of thing. And so I think I'm playing suboptimally post-flop, and because of this awareness, it, it I believe it bleeds into my pre-flop decisions. So I think I'm likely playing suboptimally pre-flop because of my lack of confidence post-flop. So I'm trying to take all this information and build up my ranges with intentionality. So I'm currently in the process of building my pre-flop ranges and my pre-flop actions, and I'm working with some of you guys who are actually listening. I'm working specifically on just building my under-the-gun range uh, with some situational adjustments, and then I'm going to be building it out from there. And I believe I'm going to have a better principle-based understanding of my pre-flop range, which will help me when I'm deciding what to do post-flop. It's not just about trying to memorize things. It's about trying to understand the principles behind the decisions. And if I can understand those pre-flop, I think it's going to help me post-flop. So I'm hoping to build a better understanding of all of that. Um, what fl- and, and with that sort of... Um, uh, build a better understanding of what flops are better for my range versus my opponent's range, what my opponent will think about my range given the flop and my action and all of those sorts of things. So at this point, I feel like I'm operating a little bit in the dark without a set of principles to support my play. So I'm going to try to integrate what what Fox and Mike and Jonathan all shared and try to take some of those areas to the next level as I improve my game. And as I think about post-flop action, specifically one of the areas I want to explore is what flops and situations I should be continuation betting or C-betting. Up until recently, I continuation bet a ton, probably close to 90 or 100%, whether I was in position or out of position, regardless of stack size, player types, board textures. And although it worked quite often, I would often find myself in way too many bad spots, either out of position against a good player or in position against someone using my aggression against me. So those I played with often knew I was going to C-bet with my entire range and I was too easy to play against. And then often they would just float me and then bet the turn and I'd have to give up. Uh, And I just knew I was being taken advantage of there because I didn't really have a good set of principles on when to continuation bet. So I'm going to be uh, reading a couple of articles or taking some excerpts from those articles in a book specifically related to continuation betting. So we're going to do that and then we'll close off the podcast. So if you're really not that interested in talking specifically about C-betting or hearing more information, uh, just shut the podcast off now. It's what it's going to be about from here to the end. Uh, Otherwise, stick with us. I've got a few articles and a book excerpt to help us uh, that'll hopefully kind of unlock the key to the puzzle of what I consider at least to be kind of an elusive topic. 
This first article is from upswingpoker.com. This is Doug Polk's uh, affiliated uh, training site. And this article is specifically by Ryan Fee, who did win a World Series of Poker bracelet and won a ton of different uh, tournaments, lots of millions of dollars on the tour. And, And the article is called Pro Tip, Don't Always Continuation Bet. And he says, many players new to poker learn that if they raise preflop and continuation bet the flop, they can oftentimes win the pot right there. This is a very straightforward and simplistic approach to how to play the game. The problem is that when players do this as they are still learning the game, they may get lucky and have it work more often in the short run than is actually sustainable in the long run. They may develop bad habits and not know what they are doing wrong. Instead of indiscriminately continuation betting every hand, it is better to choose wisely what hands to bet the flop with. The crux of the issue is when you bet a hand that you should have checked, then you get called, and you are now in the turn without a plan. Let's take an example. Let's say I raise king-10 from middle position, and the button calls. The flop is jack-10-6. This is a good flop for our hand, and on average, we will have the best hand here. So he does a a calculation here on estimating the button's preflop calling range, all the possible hands that they can have. So uh, you could find the article um, if you want to dig into the details of this. But he he looks at that and then he says, now let's calculate our equity range versus their range. And our King-10 offsuit has about 58.6% equity against what he determined to be their preflop calling range. So 58.6% is a pretty good amount of equity. The problem lies when we bet the flop and don't improve on the turn. Let's say we bet the flop and the turn is a 2. We are now in a dubious situation. If the button calls with these hands, and he selected a certain number of hands, we no longer have the best hand on average, but are still beating many hands that they could have. So based on that, he determined our equity had dropped to 41.1%. So what do we do? He says, I wish we had an answer, but there's no good option. Let's say we check and face a bet. What's our equity against a hand like top pair? Well, it's about 11%, and we are in big trouble. If they have a hand like king nine suited, however, we have 91% equity, and they are drawing very slim. So there's no obvious answer as to what to do. They may have a very strong hand, and we're in big trouble, or may have a very weak hand, and we're way ahead. It is incredibly difficult to predict what our opponent will do, which makes our decision very ambiguous. If we bet, we risk being called only by better hands and good draws. On the river, if we bet again, we would simply be betting as only a better hand will call. If we check, we risk being bluffed. As we can see that while betting the flop may be okay in a vacuum, once called, everything becomes hazy, difficult, and seemingly unprofitable. When compared to simply checking the flop, it becomes clear that that line is the most profitable. In short, you have to know what hands to bet and what hands to check. Having a carefully considered game plan that protects you leads to the easiest decisions and the most money won. So good thoughts from Ryan Fee. This next article comes from PokerListings.com and it's by Daniel Scalovi. In this day and age, you'd be hard-pressed to find a poker player who doesn't know what a continuation bet is. The upsides of the C-bet are obvious. You take advantage of the initiative you gained by raising before the flop and carry it over to the flop with another bet. Often you'll win the pot without a fight, making the continuation bet a great tool in a poker player's arsenal. Where you start running into problems, though, is when you start automatically c-betting every single time you raise before the flop. Yes, c-betting is profitable, but not when you do it every single time. There needs to be a middle ground or else you become too predictable and ultimately exploitable. So when should you not continuation bet? 
He says, first, against multiple callers. If you raise before the flop and then are called by multiple opponents, your continuation bet will rarely, if ever, work. The more players in the pot, the greater the chance you'll be called in one or more spots. A continuation bet, by definition, is a mini bluff, using the fold equity you've gained by being the pre-flop raiser. With more players in the pot, your fold equity diminishes, and you will be called more often. When there is a high likelihood of you being called, you're better off being betting made hands than making bluffs. Also, against calling stations. For the reasons discussed above, when you find yourself up against a calling station, you should frequently be c-betting less. As the old adage goes, you can't bluff a calling station. Now, that isn't to say you should give it up completely. You need to take your particular opponent into consideration before deciding your optimal play. If your calling station opponent is the type to peel the flop very lightly, but then frequently fold to a turn bet, then absolutely keep continuation betting the flop. Just be ready to fire another barrel on the turn. These are some of the most profitable players to play against. Calling stations love to call, so let them. But bet a higher mix of your good hands and keep your bluffs and continuation bets to a minimum. On a draw-heavy board. Some flops are better than others for continuation bets. If your opponents hit the flop, they're more likely to call. So think about your opponent's range. If the bulk of it nails the flop, you're best off foregoing the c-bet. If the board is super dry, something like 5-8-7 with two hearts, you should almost always be less likely to fire a c-bet with nothing. That's because draw-heavy boards almost always give your opponent something to like. If you regularly c-bet this type of board, you're regularly flushing money down the drain. Remember your perceived range, too. Try and get into your opponent's shoes. Think about what he thinks you have. If it appears the flop is unlikely to have helped you, you should be less inclined to continuation bet. An example, you raise from middle position and get called by a player on the button. The flop comes 3-3-2. Your bet is not going to be given respect because the vast majority of the time, you will have missed the flop completely. Continuation bets work most often when flops come that look like they would help a pre-flop raiser. When you are out of position. As always in poker, if you are out of position, things become more difficult. If you make a habit out of continuation betting and then giving up when called, your opponents will take notice. They will start calling your raises in position, calling your flop bet, and just taking the pot away from you on the turn. If your pre-flop raise is called in position by a tricky opponent, you should generally see bet less often. It is already tricky to play a pot out of position, and against a tough player, it only becomes even more difficult. When you are in position, things become easier because you can more accurately gauge your opponent's hand strength. This means you can continuation bet more often because you can more confidently fire second barrels when your opponent checks to you on the turn. When you're out of position, you are left guessing, and often end up being forced to check fold when your continuation bet fails on the flop. The recurring theme. Obviously there is a recurring theme here. The determining factor in whether or not you should fire a continuation bet or not is fold equity. Simply put, the greater your fold equity is, the greater likelihood that your opponent will fold, the more you should see bet. Once you lose that fold equity, continuation betting ceases to be profitable. So stop trying to win every single pot that you've raised before the flop. It's never going to happen. Take a minute, analyze the board texture, your opponent and his range, and your perceived range. If all signs point to c-bet, then c-bet. This article is from thinkingpoker.net, and it's called Continuation Betting for Advanced Players. The continuation bet has evolved a lot since Volume 1 of Harrington and Hold'em first introduced the concept to the poker-playing public. The general idea, as Harrington explained it, was that most flops miss most hands. If you don't start with a pair in the hole, it's hard to flop one, meaning that even if the flop didn't help you, it probably didn't help your opponent either. 
Thus, Harrington recommends that when you raise preflop with an unpaired hand and miss the flop, you should usually bluff it away. At least if only one opponent saw the flop with you. This is a continuation of the preflop action where you've already represented strength by raising, whereas your opponent has shown weakness by just calling. That works just fine when your opponent does not understand this concept himself, which you could pretty much count on back when Harrington and Hold'em was first published. Nowadays, thanks in no small part to that book, the continuation bet is a widely understood and employed concept. Even weaker players will often fire a bluff at the flop if they raise pre-flop, and they'll expect you to do the same. Does this mean you should stop continuation betting? Certainly not. The premises under Harrington's original argument haven't changed. Most flops still miss most hands, and the preflop raiser usually has a stronger range than the preflop caller. As with anything in poker, you simply need to understand this concept better than your opponents do in order to make money with it. This article will suggest a number of nuances to consider when deciding whether to follow up on your preflop raise with a continuation bet on the flop. Opponent Tendencies This one factor swamps all of the others combined, so you need to consider it first. You can have a strong range, great barreling opportunities, and tons of outs, but if your opponent shoves all in any time anyone bets the flop, then you shouldn't try to bluff him. Similarly, against a nit who won't call a bet with less than top pair, you should bluff even when nothing stronger than the 18th nuts in your range, you have no outs, and you are out of position. In other words, all of the advice here is subject to your judgment and may even be irrelevant if, if your opponent is as blatantly exploitable as those above. If you are playing online and using a HUD, a heads-up display, the most important statistic to look for here is your opponent's fold-to-continuation bet percentage. If the number is high, you should bluff often. If it's low, bluffing could still be correct. You should look next at how often he folds to turn bets. If he rarely folds the flop but often folds the turn, then he is a good candidate for a double barrel bluff, which could prove to be even more profitable than if you had simply succeeded on your flop bluff. We'll talk more about setting up multi-barrel bluffs in a moment. It is important to realize that these numbers don't take any situational factors into account, so they are not a complete substitute for your own judgment. Just because your opponent has folded to 18 to the last 25 continuation bets you've seen him face does not mean he will fold a 9-spade, 8-spade, 7-diamond flop when he called your small blind raise on his big blind. Consider opponent tendencies first and foremost, but consider them in light of the other factors that we discuss. Board Texture What are the best kinds of flops to bluff? The cop-out answer is that it depends on your opponent's tendencies. Against a level 1 thinker who will fold if he doesn't have a pair or a good draw, then the driest flops are the best to bluff. You can expect such an opponent to fold almost always on a 3-diamond, three 3-spade, three 3-club three flop. A level 2 thinker will realize that this flop probably didn't help you either. He isn't going to fold an ace, and he may even bluff raise you with weaker hands. That said, if you force me to give you an answer other than it depends, I'd tell you that the best flop to continuation bet has one big card and two little cards, with no obvious flush or straight draws. King of Hearts, Seven of Clubs, Two of Spades is a good example. This is a particularly tough flop for your opponent to hit since he can't have a draw and he probably isn't playing too many hands with a deuce or a seven in them. At the same time, the king gives him something to be afraid of. If he decides randomly to peel the flop with 10-9, he could be drawing nearly dead if you have the hand that you are representing. Conversely, continuation bets tend to be least successful on very coordinated boards. A board of 8 of clubs, 7 of clubs, 6 of diamonds gives your opponent plenty of ways to a flop to pair, flush draw, or an open-ended straight draw, none of which is likely to fold to a single bet. For the record, I should tell you that third-level thinkers may realize all of this and adjust their ranges accordingly. 
In other words, they will probably realize that you expect them to miss a dry flop more often, and consequently they may call with ace high or attempt to rebluff you. Similarly, they will give a continuation bet on a coordinated flop more respect and may fold hands like bottom pair with no redraw on the assumption that you will not be bluffing too often. Poker is a complicated head game. Preflop ranges. Poker is also a math game, and the best way to resolve those, quote, but what if he knows that I know that he knows that I know, paradoxes, is to look for some mathematical grounding for your strategy. In this case, if you can make an educated guess about your opponent's preflop calling range, and if you can honestly identify your own preflop range, then you can determine which of you a particular flop is more likely to help. Suppose that you open raise from first position at a nine-handed table, the opponent to your immediate left calls, and everyone else folds. You know your own range to be your top 7% of hands, which is pocket eights and better, ace 10 suited and better, king 10 suited, and ace queen offsuit. You believe your opponent will call here preflop with any pair, most of his suited connectors, and his strongest Broadway hands, and that he doesn't usually re-raise a first position raiser. Using a tool like Poker Stove, we can evaluate how these ranges fare on various flops. On the King of Hearts, Seven of Clubs, Two of Spades flop we mentioned before, your range is a 58-42% to 42% favorite over his. Thus, the flop is better for you than for your opponent, and you should lean toward betting it no matter which two cards you happen to have this time. No matter how suspicious your opponent is, there is a mathematical limit to how much he can do about it. His only options are to start calling or raising with weaker hands, which is to your benefit since your range is generally stronger than his. Or he can just give up with his weaker hands, which is to your benefit the times that you have nothing. On the 8 of clubs, 7 of clubs, 6 of diamonds flop, however, your opponent's range is favored to yours, 56-44%. to This time, your options are limited. If you just blindly bet with anything, a smart opponent will be able to call or raise often enough to exploit your weak range. Betting only your very strong hands will also be exploitable, so you'll need to be selective with your bluffs, taking into consideration some of these factors below. There's one last thing to realize here. If you're going to base your continuation betting frequency on the strength of your preflop range, then on any given flop texture you should continuation bet more often the earlier your position at the table. Since you are presumably raising a stronger range from under the gun than from the button, your equity on the flop will almost always be higher, suggesting that you ought to bluff more often. Equity versus Calling Range In most situations against most opponents, the correct strategy will be to bet some but not all of your made hands and bluff some but not all of your misses. Deciding which hands to bet and which to check is where we really get into playing poker. All other things being equal, it is better to make a continuation bet on an 8 of clubs, 7 of clubs, 6 of diamond flop with 3 of clubs, 2 of clubs, than with 3 of spades, 2 of spades. Against an opponent who never raises, if you know you want to bluff 60% of the time that you don't flop a pair, then you should simply bet the best 60% of that range that isn't good enough to bet for value. The possibility of a raise complicates matters, though. When you have a good draw, you would prefer not to set yourself up for a raise that you cannot profitably call. Against an opponent who will check if you check, but will always either fold or raise three times the pot if you bet, then you would actually be better off bluffing with your weakest hands and checking your strong draws. This is because your equity when called doesn't matter, your opponent will never call, and when he raises, the size is too large for you to call. Your hand does matter when the action is checked around in the flop, though. You have a lot more to gain from seeing a turn when you have a draw than when you don't. Thus, against this opponent, it is better to bluff with hands that have nothing going for them and to take a free card with your draws. Unfortunately, you will not always know with such precision whether or whether your opponent will call or raise. It is generally better to have equity versus your opponent's calling range when bluffing, 
but you should be alert for situations where you are likely to get raised out of your hand and adapt your ranges accordingly. Multi-barrel bluffs. There are many situations where a willingness to fire multiple barrels can turn an unprofitable flop bluff into a very profitable one. You don't have to plan on bluffing every possible turn card, but it's a good idea to have an idea of which cards will produce profitable double barreling opportunities. Usually, you'll be looking for cards that are scary for your opponent's range. For example, big cards like aces or kings or cards that complete obvious draws. And or that improve your range. Example, cards that give you a draw you could complete on the river if your turn bluff gets called. Thus, hands with backdoor draws become good candidates for a flop continuation bet since they will often turn a draw with which you can fire a second barrel. Realize that if you plan on bluffing more than 50% of turns, then you want your flop bet to get called. Every time your opponent calls a flop with a hand that will fold to a turn bet, you profit, even if that hand is far stronger than yours. Thus, you may want to choose a smaller size for your flop bet. In conclusion, as you can see, there's a lot to think about. In fact, there are still more factors that could influence your decision to fire a continuation bet, but this should be more than enough to keep you busy for a while. Now that the continuation bet has become widespread knowledge, there are new opportunities for profit in understanding this play better than your opponents do. They can try to adapt to your continuation betting, but if you are adapting to their adaptations, then you'll still come out ahead. Well, there you guys have it. Uh, probably more than you ever wanted to know about c-betting, and obviously it's still just kind of scratching the surface. I was going to share a little bit more from a couple of books, but uh, the episode got pretty long already. So we'll end it there. Uh, as always, I'm open to your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, email stevefredland at gmail.com, and we'll just kind of keep on going here. Uh, keep sending me your ideas for episodes. We've got a lot of things that are in the queue that we could talk about, uh, and uh, but we want to keep making this as effective and as valuable to you. I would love it if you would uh, share this with your family, friends, others at the poker table, uh, your buddies at your home game, whatever it is, and get more people listening to this thing. Uh, we're growing in numbers, and it's exciting to hear, but uh, always excited to continue to build it, and I think the discussion gets better the more and more people that are engaged. So uh, with that, I will close off, and we will you will uh, hear from me next week.